לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. שלום Our families in Israel, our friends in Israel and soldiers fighting in the IDF, and we hope that they too can come home safely and be with their families. And uh, today we are noting the passing of Rabbi Jules Harlow, Rabbi Jules Harlow, who was the editor of Sim Shalom, the Sidur of the Conservative Movement, and many, many other works. He's a member of Rabbi Kalmanovsky's synagogue and uh, I want to turn to you, Jeremy, just say a word about Rabbi Harlow um, and um, his work and um, his legacy. Here we are. Here we are um, recording this on Tuesday afternoon, Tuesday evening, and tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock will be the funeral here in our sanctuary of Rav Yosef Yechiel ben Hanan Umetaleah. And uh, Jules and I had a very nice relationship. We bonded over a few things that we loved. First of all, We were both born in Iowa. He grew up in, in the Jewish Mecca of Sioux City, Iowa. Uh, my, my mom's in Iowa, and I was born in Des Moines. And we also bonded over, uh, over Agnon. Jules was one of Agnon's, the great Israeli writer, uh, Shai Agnon. Jules was one of the first, or maybe the first, translator of Agnon into English, and I'm a passionate fan. And we bonded over poetry, because Jules, and this is... something I will speak about tomorrow. He had a tremendous, really exquisite, poetic sensibility. Uh, he, the, the beauty of the 1985 Sidor Sim Shalom and his first great work, the 1972 Mahzor, which he was only 41 years old when he, he uh, edited that, that Mahzor, which was really a new era in conservative liturgy. Because it brought in so many additional poetic uh, elements, including including some uh, modern poetry and some medieval piyut that was not really typical for a uh, for a Roshana Yom Kippur Mahzor, but he brought it in because it it opened up the emotional and and aesthetic. We may talk about aesthetics later in a different way, but the aesthetics, the beautiful quality. Of, uh, of the Hebrew prayer book. And that's something that uh, I really appreciated about him and shared, about, shared, shared with him that he and I uh, talked about that. And one last little detail, which those who knew him well um, would know this, but, uh, but 
you know, people out there in the world, if they dive in with Sim Shalom, they wouldn't know that he was a super accomplished clarinetist. And and as a young person, he decided between, you know, a career in music or a career in the rabbinate. And sure. as a young as a young man who was born in he's 92, so he was born in 1932. Um Benny Goodman was like the guy. Benny Goodman was the biggest sure. guy in his young life. And he loved to play that Jewish jazz like Benny Goodman. Sure. I remember uh, he, he, he came to Ramon, Canada in the 70s, in the late 70s, 75 through, I think, about maybe the early 80s, maybe 81, 82. Uh, he was there. He was friends with Rabbi Israel Silverman, Allah Shalom, uh, was the rabbi of the camp. Uh, and, of course, uh, I, I, I studied with him and, and uh, was deeply influenced by him over the course of many, many summers at Ramah. Rabbi Harlow uh, had, a, had a very gentle presence. Uh, and of course, uh, his wife, Nava, was was also a wonderful presence at, at camp. And um, may his memory be a blessing. He left a real, a, a very strong imprint on on us because the, I mean, we still use the Sidur Sim Shalom in, in my shul. I know that uh, some shuls have moved away from it, but um, you know, that influence is felt in a very, very deep way. I think he, um, I think the design of the, 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 the Sidur represents a certain aesthetic, the type, all the things that are involved in publishing and producing a book of that uh, importance, even the weight of the paper. I mean, they, there was, there are all sorts of conversations about that and the choice of what translations and how to include it in the essays at the beginning and, and uh, the additional notes. He did a lot of the translations himself, and I think it's important to note that he worked very hard to make the translations work as prayer, yeah. which is not always true of the Hebrew, even for those of us who, who know the Hebrew well. And I think that you know the, the Harlow Sidur replaces Silverman Sidur, and there the translations tend to be more literal. And he was looking for something that would actually work as a prayer in English. Sure. And a lot of times he's quite successful. If you pay close attention, by the way, to if, if you look at the English, especially when he get, renders a piyut, he does a really good job of making the meter match the Hebrew, uh, which is definitely not easy. And I want to throw one other thing out there, which our readers or listeners or viewers I hope you'll appreciate the following thing, which is that Jules had an exquisite, uh, you know, literary sensibility about Hebrew, but he came to JTS and basically did not have any Hebrew. And he, he had very rudimentary Hebrew and he worked incredibly hard, but he learned it and, and the language became part of him uh, to the extent that he could translate, you know, the fiction of a, of, of a Nobel Prize winning <laughs> Shai Agnon. So I just want to say to our to our people out there, uh, you know, it, it is great to be able to address the classic texts in whatever you, language you can. Translation's fine, but the texts live in Hebrew, and so I want to encourage you, don't think because you don't know such great Hebrew that you can't learn and get better and, and learn more and more. That's that's one of Jules's examples to, to people, is that if you, if you work hard, you can learn some Hebrew. And of course, you know, the Siddur and liturgical Hebrew throughout the different periods that the liturgy comes together is is it's not simple. I mean, we 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 do have a golden age of 
literary production in Spain, Spanish poetry, in, in lots of Hebrew poetry throughout the ages. And of course, as you mentioned, you know, the modern Israeli Hebrew with its own idiom. And I think um, his imprint on the on us, on the conservative movement, uh, remains, I think, a, a very, very important imprint and lasting legacy to him. May his memory be a blessing and may, and may uh, the words that he shaped you know, continue to inspire us in the um, in the religious experience of worship, which is the subject I think of our parsha, and that that's what where we want to go. You know, parsha truma, which is our parsha this week, really changes the focus completely from what we've seen over the last couple of weeks: Yitro and Mishpatim, the revelation of God at Mount Sinai, and then Mishpatim, a kind of you know the the additional code of you know, how to behave, the covenant code. And here, uh, from the very beginning, we are instructed in, in creating a sanctuary, the, the collection uh, for all those whose heart moves them. To give this something of yourself in order to fabricate a um, a, a sanctuary in the Mishkan. The, the key verse of this parsha is known to many of us, uh, because it's all, you know the important verse. It's also inscribed on many you know, synagogue plaques. Vasuli mikdash v'shachanti betocham. They shall make for me a sanctuary, and I shall dwell among them. And even the the wording there is is you know calls to to mind the question as to what exactly is this, and who exactly is this for? What is the purpose of this? And and in the broadest terms, what are we doing here? What are we building here? And in the very broad terms, which I think are the terms that connect the idea of aesthetics to uh, worship, do aesthetics matter in the worship experience? And and so I'm I'm just throwing up all of those questions right now because they're questions that emerge, considering that the the parsha deals at quite length and in great detail with all of the different furnishings of the Mishkan. It's quite elaborate uh, in the sense of the, the materials are elaborate, the construction is elaborate. We'll, we'll spend several weeks on this, and it takes up a, a very important portion of the Torah. So your your reflections on any of these things, and I'm going to start with you, Rabbi Kalmanowski, since you're in an old synagogue that was built in 1927. 27, yes, Okay, so pick up the question here. I'm going to just ask you point blank: Does the experience of space enhance your religious experience? You know, maybe that's not a binary of a yes or no because okay. because um, Jewish tefillah. I I I want to affirm. That Jewish tefillah, Jewish worship, really can happen any place. Whenever ten Jews come together, the divine presence is there, and you can do it outside, you know, and and you can do it, you know, in in a in a less than less than you know uh, m- m- uh, majestic space. And I think that's true, and I'm I, I don't want to deny that. And places of particular beauty. Uh, and and that the experience of tefillah is about a person and the words that they're saying 
And I, I, I certainly think that's the primary thing. And places of exceptional beauty can can evoke in you reverence, places that that are uh, scenes of, of art that people have poured over the artistic, the kalim, all the accoutrements in a, in a, in a room. Um, certainly the, the Sefer Torah, when it's gleaming and covered with silver and you open it up and the calligraphy is so beautiful. I think those those um, aspects of a physical space are supposed to and often do evoke a sense of, of awe. Um, something that is really beautiful is salutary. Uh, let me tell you a, a piece of Gemara, which I think some of our l listeners and, and viewers will know. Um, uh, it's it, it Daniel, the, the prophet Daniel, is said to have a window that faces Jerusalem. And um, uh, the Gemara says people shouldn't pray in rooms that don't have windows. Now, that's not a a halacha. You can pray in a room that doesn't have a window, but it's an ethical exhortation in Tractate Brachot that I think um, suggests that light is part of the experience of prayer. Perhaps, perhaps the the prayer room has a window, so you look out and you don't just fall fall into your small self, but you look out and see the world beyond you. But I think it's also a sense that there's a um, that there is a an aesthetic dimension of a radiant place, and that's. Part of what goes on in the Mishkan, all the all the gold and silver and the and the menorah and the and the light that is there, I think it is supposed to evoke a visual experience of radiance that leads to also a spiritual experience of radiance. Right. You know, I'm, I'm, as you talk about this, I'm thinking about my my synagogue, uh, which has a lot of natural light coming in from the ceiling, um, and uh, you know, it's. I guess you have to get it repaired then. That's right. No, they're, they're, <laughs> you have a you have a, a skylight. There's skylights, you know, running down the central aisle, basically, uh, and and beautiful, beautiful windows that that um, we've we've placed at the at the front of the synagogue. They these were windows that had been uh, fashioned for the old synagogue, which was destroyed in a fire. So we have um, you know a real sense of the heavenly light here, and it's, it's quite enjoyable. We also have a, an opaque kind of uh, glass uh, over the ark, which which um, I've likened to the Tsohar in the uh, in the in the in Noah's ark. It's it's the ark, it's the window that you mentioned. It's the window that looks out. It's kind of opaque, you know, um, and, and it's it's right in front of the near Tamid. Uh, so there there is a lovely aesthetic to there. And and of course, you know, we are aware of weather outside and we see clouds and it's um, it, it can be quite moving, especially when I time the thunder for a sermon, right? I get it in sync with the sermon. That's really, really stunning. Um, Bring in the thunder. <laughs> it's happened, actually. And light, you know, we, we've, we've had power outages during uh, services, too. Um, but, but this, of course, we want to feel a certain kind of reverence. We want to feel comfort. We want to feel awe. Um, to the extent that those are part of the modern experience, and to the extent that you know we we are all somewhat literate in the architectural language of um, of synagogues, you know the synagogues that we grew up in are are different than the synagogues that let's say characterize the conservative movement of the fifties and sixties and maybe seventies, which were large um, buildings. Uh, I'm thinking of the 
the Frank Lloyd Wright Synagogue in, in Philadelphia or in Elkins Park, which is an extraordinary uh, uh, building um, that that you want to go to as a kind of, I'm sorry, I don't want to offend anybody, but it's, it's maybe a good place to visit. I'm not sure I want to dive in there. Um, I'm not sure, you know, and, and this is the problem, I guess, with with buildings as as houses of community. Um, what makes it home? I mean, it's not home to me, obviously. I'm sure it's home to the people that are members there. And I shouldn't say that that it's, you know, it's 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 you do get an experience or you do get a a, a feeling when you go there. Um, but it's, you know, and I'm I'm thinking that the there, there are various layers to our religious experience when we walk into a building. Some of those experiences, layers, are have to do with aesthetics, and some have to do with history. So your synagogue is a, an older American synagogue in a certain idiom. Um, my synagogue is a newer American synagogue in a totally different idiom. Um, and um, and then we, if we traveled to Eastern Europe, uh, and of course, a lot of those synagogues were destroyed, but but there are relics of those synagogues, and some have been recreated and repurposed and refashioned. Um, there's a different experience in there. This, that it's an experience of memory, an experience of association that is tied to it. I mean, you know, we've visited, you know, on many of these heritage tours, we 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 visit these old synagogues. People enjoy the visits. There's not much of a community necessarily in these places. But we're coming and we're, we're making contact with a different aspect of our religious experience. Barry, you want to get in it? Yeah, so I think that the discussion about aesthetics has to be broadened a little bit because we cannot literally dive in anywhere. We're not allowed to dive in a place that smells bad, for example. And the Shulchan Aruch reminds us that the Shulach Sibur has to have a pleasant voice, that someone whose voice is not acceptable aesthetically is not considered to be the best person to lead us in prayer. And thinking about the Parsha now, in light of our conversation up till now, so the Parsha really is literally about the nuts and bolts of the Mishkan, the very fine details that go into making the furniture is what we have this week. And it comes, first of all, it reminds me of the great cathedral Notre Dame in Paris, which I, if my memory serves me correctly, took four generations of people to build it so that the people who first started, their great-grandchildren might finish it. And there are parts of it that were only going to be seen by the artisan who created them because they were so high up that no one would ever see them again. In our Parsha, everything is going to be seen by someone. Um, there are parts that only will be seen by Kohanim, some parts only by the Kohen Gadol. But I think what we're supposed to take away from the lavish, if that's not quite the right word, description of the Mishkan is that we're supposed to think about everything when we pray. You know, we have a tendency to gloss over the details of our physical space and not really think how was the Ark made in the synagogue, for example, or why are we sitting on these particular pews as opposed to other kinds of things? And I think the Parsha invites us to consider all these features when we dive in and to find a way to make them holy. So, I mean, in that way, I would just build from that and say that no two davening experiences are, are, are ever the same, the same way that 
no two performances are the same no two presentations of of a piece of music are the same you know we 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 are all you know we peop, we love listening to music we live listen to recorded music but if we are in the habit of going to a concert uh, whether it's uh, you know a, a classical concert or whether it's popular music or rock you know you could hear the same songs but or the same melodies or the same symphonies but no two experiences are the same i i remember you know learning that you know after studying a piece of music and then um i was so excited i went to a concert and, and i heard it live it sounded so different so different from what i kept hearing on on, on recording and and I, it, I of course i was young i didn't understand that that you know, it's a new, it's a different conductor. It's a different set of musicians, and they're interpreting it differently. And so, you know, the the you you are experiencing a lot of things all the time in synagogue. You're not going to experience everything the same way. You're certainly not going to experience the words, the liturgy, the melodies. They may be the same, but you know, the people are different every week. I mean, there's some we have plenty of regulars, but the um, the weather's different. The timing's different. Everything's different. If we're attuned to that, you know, we're 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 I think aware that we're in a living organism when we come to shul. I'm I'm I at least I I appreciate that so much because you know when when certain people are present in shul, I'm so appreciative of the fact that they're there. And when people are away, I miss them very much. And and um, you know that that has become part of my experience to see people. So maybe on that note, to what extent is the worship experience also very much connected to a social experience and to and to the people, and um, and to what extent is it connected to place and to what is ex extent is it connected to things like even the weather? You know, <laughs> who wants to pick up that? Or what you know to to what extent your religious experience is defined only by aesthetics? Or by circumstance, uh, it certainly can't be only by aesthetics. But you know, each of these things are are part of it. I mean, um, you know, some some people, of course, are JFK, just for, just Kid for Kiddush, yeah. just for Kiddush. They come at the end, and I, of course, would rather have somebody come just for Kiddush than not come at all. Of course, I'd rather have people who whose primary doorway that their you know Jewish connection is. The fellowship part, the habershat. Absolutely, absolutely. That you have that you have friends that you you know spend time together with on Shabbat, and because the way community works, of course, um, those people will be there when you have a funeral, and they will be there when you have a simcha, and and that's a great thing. Um, I, I do think that you know dedicating a space to kedusha, dedicating a space to holiness say this is a special special place not an ordinary place extraordinary place not ordinary place i think is is a an essential element of, of a religious community i think that you know like american baby boom and post i think we have a little bit of an underappreciation um of of the aesthetic of what goes into trying to build something really 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 special uh, and I like to get, you know, I can get a little mystical and and think that the place absorbs the holiness that the that the community invests it with. So I I do think the place the place matters. I think it can evoke in us different things. Um, and I don't mind, you know, that when people when people are just just there for the social thing. Um, but I, I really don't think it's one or the other. But but the Mishkan, the uh, 
the idea that there is a sacred place that the entire community in you know labors together to make the focus of the community is itself a big part of it it's it it is it is that there you know like it, it is that it that it is aesthetic it is that it is beautiful it is that it has absorbed the worship but it is also a communal project and that's what we spend most of the rest of the book of exodus like what are we doing together in this communal project by the way you know sometimes you have a communal project that goes wrong we call it the golden calf yeah. And you, you have a communal project that goes right. We call it the Mishkan. And and so, you know, just, just having a project doesn't mean it's, it'll, it'll succeed. But if, if Am Yisrael traveling through the desert is devoted to this one special place and the camp is arrayed around it, it's it's the nucleus, that's a pretty powerful claim that the Torah So let me, let me interject here and say that isn't it interesting that in about the 17th century we get a, an idea coming into into the the conversation which and and here you'll have to help me with the provenance of the idea but it's and i'm seeing it quoted in the malbim who's a 19th century commentator and it's part of a popular song that that they shall make a sanctuary for me can be construed as a commandment that everyone should fabricate, create, construct a sanctuary in the chambers of their hearts. And and just spend a moment with your glass of wine on that one. Like, you know, we're going to build a Mishkan in our heart. Um, I'm not even sure what that means. And and um but but is that a meditative uh image or is it saying the you know that's we're we're gonna we're gonna take our heart and we're going to worship with that, or maybe the words to the song which uh, which uh, are composed by that. Then maybe Jeremy, you can take us into that, or Barry, if you want. So I, I I thanks to the the brilliance and erudition of Rabbi Google, um, I, and I, I I'm I'm looking in the book that they're referring to. I haven't yet found it, but hopefully will. Um, so a, a 16th or 17th, 16th century Rabbi Elazar Azikri, who also wrote Yedid Nefesh, wrote a book called Sefer Acharedim, the book of the God-fearers. And uh, Yedid Nefesh appears in this book, um, and uh, at least appears in my copy of it. Yedid Nefesh, the poem that we recite prior to yeah, it, uh, it, it, um Yedid Nefesh appears in my copy of this book, but um, but I suspect that that's actually just kind of thrown in there uh like in a grab bag and as, as an appendix. Um, but the, the phrase that is quoted now, I have on a website, but have not located in the book, is from him, In my heart, I will build a, a tabernacle for, for God's radiance, and my, and my unique soul will offer a korban, offer a sacrifice. And the 20th century... Uh, first Lithuanian and then Brooklyn, uh, Rav Yitzchak Hutner was an important important figure in uh, in 20th century uh, Orthodoxy. Wrote the following poem, which is often sung: Bilvavi Mishkan Evne Lehadar Kivodo, Uve Mishkan Mizbeach Akim Lekarne Hodo, Ule Ner Tamid Ekachli Et Esha Akeda, Ule Korban Akrivlo Et Nafshi Hayichida. So that's in my heart. 
I will build a sanctuary uh, for um, for the radiance of God's glory. And in that tabernacle, I will create an altar for the radiance, for God's radiance. For the Ner Tamid, I will take the fire of the binding of Isaac. And for a Korban, I will offer my unique soul. Um, so, yeah, so the offering, I mean, this is not new to the 17th century. Maybe the, the phrasing of Mish, that I will build the Mishkan in my heart, but the offering of the self is always, and all the way back, including even in the Gemara that talks about fasting as the offering of the self, the, the true offering is always the offering of the self. And if you're offering an animal, as Nachmanides says in a powerful passage, it's, it's really because you can't offer your own life, but you should offer your own life. You're offering the animal as a substitute for your own life. Uh, you know, there's a really popular Christian song. It's a great song. It's a gospel song. Oh, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. And with thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary for you. Clearly, they're quoting the Sefer Acharedim. Well, clearly, I was thinking. Yeah, maybe not, but but it's the same. Or maybe basis. the Sefer Chassidim Acharedim is is getting it from a Christian source. Who knows? It's possible. It's possible. But the idea that I want that I really want to be a dwelling place, dwelling place for the dwelling place, a Mishkan Lashchina, is just deep, deep, deep in the devotional part of religion. I'm I'm reacting to it. I, you know, this is not part of of the way I I personally you know compose any kind of spiritual experience. I I I mean, I'm happy to go there. You know, to have the exercise of of meditating on that. But um, I you know maybe maybe it's just that. Well, th these are things that that appeal or don't appeal um, to us. I I I do understand or or sense the idea of sacrifice although although it, it comes up to a certain boundary line that that i think is is difficult i i find difficult and maybe you know others would too barry i don't know if you have a reaction to to bilvavi um actually i i think i might have several um so uh let me uh let me start with one i want to come back to the verse in the in the parsha mikdash v'shakanti b'tocham because what we have here in opposition is the idea of mikdash, which we often translate as sanctuary or holy habitation, but in later biblical and rabbinic literature, almost always refers to the beta mikdash, the temple. And the verb form is v'shachati, is what's going to generate our noun mishkan. And we've spoken before about the difference between the temple and the tabernacle, and I imagine the temple is this awe-inspiring building. And I don't know that the Mishkan is construed in the same way. And the temporariness of the Mishkan, because it's continually being put up and taken down, I think is reflected in the song, the poem Bilvavi, because the tabernacle of our heart is also something fleeting. We can't keep something in our heart for our entire life. And therefore, there's an invitation to kind of come in and out of sacred space. And I wonder, you know, if we would do a thought experiment, if we would change the verse, Vasuli Mishkan, they should build for me a, a tabernacle, and I will sanctify them, whether that would generate the same 
set of images that we have with Mikdash and Vashachanti. I'm not sure, but it's it's worth thinking about. But I wanted to add one other point. And I think that prayer at its heart is intended to do one of two things. It's either supposed to enlarge our sense of ourself, or it's supposed to enable us to recognize the other in the world. That our world, which for our lives is circumscribed in a very real way by our bodies, actually exists in a world that's not our own. That we are not the sum of all the pieces. And I think in that sense, aesthetics are very important and space is also very important because space can help us get out of ourselves if we can think that we're supposed to do that when we're in the space. And and time is also important as we come to the end of our, <laughs> of our time here. We, uh, we, uh, you know, it, it, is a, it is also another great question. It's the it's more, you know, we do we have the religious experience in in a space that shapes us, or do we have religious experiences, as Heschel said, in sanctuaries of time? And of course, well, both, both both have to be true, both, right? Because both. it has to be both. Because and and in fact, Heschel really overstates this in in the Sabbath, and and you will hear people ask. I mean, they ask. Me all the time, and they ask you, or they'll say, you know, well, Judaism doesn't believe in sacred space; it believes in sacred time. Well, that's a vast overstatement, as as the parasha and the Beit Hamikdash indicate. But so does our relationship to Eretz Yisrael. Absolutely. Suggest. And 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 I think that we can say, you know, that when that works, it's beautiful, and when it doesn't work, um, when I mean, you can have an idolatrous relationship to Eretz Yisrael, and certainly, I think. You know, you got, we can have Abu Zarah, We can have the the idol worship of of the land in an excessive way. So everything in balance, everybody. You know, you you can have. There's more than one value in the world, right? right. And, and and the values don't always coalesce. And sometimes you need to emphasize one a little more, and sometimes you need to emphasize a little bit less. And you know, we say this in the middle of the war, and I do love Eretz Yisrael, and I do feel special sanctity, and I believe that, you know, it's kind of produced too much violence also, and, you know, how do we put all these things together? It's, it's, it's a local, it's not, it's not easy. But we've, we've, we've tried, and we've tried, at least in the, in the process of interpreting and reading, we've tried to create, a, I think we created a sanctuary here, which is really nice, a virtual sanctuary, and uh, we want to thank everyone who is joined us uh, on in any medium watching or listening to us uh, you're part of this sanctuary a very special place that uh, has come to study torah to share words of torah to enjoy that and to find comfort in fellowship and in friendship and also together with uh, with the, the the rest of the jewish people who are seeking comfort in every means uh, during these challenging times we, we thank you for watching and we look forward to seeing you another week in another edition of Parsha Talk. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.
ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. כל רמה 102.3 מה אישים? קיץ באוויר. רדיו כל רמה 102.3 FM 